you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 again. We've been uh, going through this series, So You Want to Be Happy. And uh, what we're looking at in this passage of Scripture is what Jesus says about this. And so here's the reality. Every person who's ever walked this planet wants to be happy. It doesn't matter what country you've lived in, it doesn't matter what generation it was, every one of us has a, a longing that's been placed in our soul for true happiness. And we even say in our documents as a country that the Creator has endowed upon in each one of us an inalienable right, an undeniable right for life, liberty, and at least the pursuit of happiness. Here's the problematic thing, is that most of us don't go to our Creator to find out how to go down that pursuit. Many of us do things that we think are going to work, or that and by nature we just say, well, I'd be happy if I had this, or I'd be happy if I did this, or I'd be happy if this happened. And we don't go to, what, is, what does the Bible actually say to us about it? This book that our Creator has written to us, and His Son, Jesus, preaches a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in Matthew chapter 5, and He tells us the pathway to true happiness. There's a, ver- a word in these verses that's continually repeated. It's the word blessed in many of your translations. It's a Greek term, makarios. It means happiness, true happiness, an inner satisfaction, a deep security that only comes from the Lord. That's true happiness. And some translations even translate it that way. And today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. It's the seventh of the eight statements of blessing, oftentimes called beatitudes, that we're going to look at. And they build on each other up to a point, and then they start to overflow out of each other. And so we're going to look at them. I'm going to read to you all the way through the seventh one this week, and then next week will be the last week in this series. But verse 1, Matthew chapter 5, you have your Bible? Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And so there are two members of the audience. There are the crowds, those who are interested, and there are the disciples, those who are committed to him. And he, Jesus, began to teach them, talking about his disciples, saying, Blessed, that's the word makarios, happy, truly happy, are the poor in spirit. Now, that's not who we think is naturally truly happy. He's saying, happy are those who realize they don't bring anything to the table before God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones who get the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, and we saw it's mourning over our sin, for they will be comforted. Happy are those who are meek, humbly dependent upon God, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we saw that's the climactic one. That's the one they all build to, and then everything else after that overflows from there. Blessed are the merciful, those who show mercy, those who seek justice for those receive no justice for they will be shown mercy blessed are the pure in heart those with an undivided heart for they will see god blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of god and that's the verse that we'll focus in on today blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of god now i don't think it takes a lot of talk or convincing to share with you that we live in a time that lacks peace if you just turned on the news i don't care what news channel you watch if it's local news if it's msnbc fox news cnn whatever you watch You saw what happened last week in Paris. And so there are bombings outside of a soccer game. There are shootings in a concert. One report I read said there were seven uh, locations where terrorist attacks took place. And you saw that. That's That's not peace. If you've been watching the news over the last several years, you've seen what's happened in Syria. Four and a half years of what's been taking place in Syria that 250,000 people have been killed. That's not just a statistic. Think about that for a second. A quarter of a million people killed and over 11 million people forced to leave their country. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking about refugees. That's not peace. And you go home today and maybe there'll be a car bombing somewhere in the Middle East and Baghdad and Beirut and you won't be shocked. But it's not just out there. It's not just in other nations. If you were to go home today and you were to turn on the news and you were to see there was some terrorist attack, I don't know, pick a place at some college campus, would that shock you? No, because it happens here. What about, and I don't even want to say this, but at a movie theater, 
or at a church. That happens here. We see that. It's become regular, and you don't have to just be reminded of it when you fly somewhere and you go through the security. You go to that this actually impacts your life, but here's the problem with that. We think a lot of that stuff is out there. And so not only is there not peace in our world, I don't think I have to convince you of that, but there is not peace in many of our lives. Ask some of the lawyers that go to our church. We have a lot of them. Ask some of the counselors. We have a few of those too. What do they deal with? And it's not just watch the debates and see the political lack of peace or watch the economy and see the economic lacks of peace that we have, but think about in our own relationships, in marriages, in families, with neighbors, uh, people with their companies, companies with other companies. And think about how, much, how many battlefields there are in our world and how many people are lacking peace. And then Jesus says here, truly happy, blessed are those who make peace. So there can't be a lot of people that are doing this, right? Because we lack so much peace. And so today what we're going to do is I'm going to ask one big question. What does the life of a peacemaker look like? What does that look like? And then if you want to apply this to your own life, then you ask yourself, is that me? Does it describe me? Because today's message is going to have four points. Each one of the points answers this question. What does the life of a peacemaker look like? And the first point is this, that peacemakers have the personal peace of God. That's a key word, of, if you're taking notes and you write it down. The peacemakers have the personal peace of God. Now, as a pastor who's personally struggled with anxiety, I know what it's like to be on my face and wonder, is my faith not good enough? Is this, why isn't this working to talk with my counselor about it and, and be struggling through? Why am I so anxious? Why can't I just, I can talk about this. I know the verses. I can teach it to other people. I can tell you, I know it's easier to define peace to give you the background of peace, to talk about the Greek word of peace, to give you verses about peace, and it is to actually experience peace. What we're talking about here is actually experiencing the peace of God. Which is something we know God wants. It's all throughout the Bible. It's mentioned, peace is mentioned over 400 times directly throughout the Bible. If you go from cover to cover, what you end up seeing is God continually talked about as a God of peace. Just in the New Testament, I'll give you a few verses if you want them for, want them for your own study. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 May God himself, who? The God of peace, sanctify you through and through. That means make you more like Jesus. Hebrews 13, 20, just the very beginning of it. May the God of peace, he's called that again. Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. All right. I like that. Because who robs us of peace? It's oftentimes the lies that we believe. Who's the father of lies? Satan. So the God of peace gives us peace, and he sends his son, who's called then the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, coming up on Christmas season. This is a verse you might see, even at secular stores or on cards sent to you. They'll, they'll give this verse. This is a verse that shares the gospel, really. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on all the responsibility will be on him, and he will be in control. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called, and he gives four titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, Son of the King of Peace, of the God of Peace, Prince of Peace. And when the angels declare his birth, the shepherds out in the field, what do they say? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men, but not all men. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. And you see peace all throughout the Bible. The beginnings of books start. May peace be with you. Let God's face shine upon you. May his peace be with you and give you his peace. And we continually see the peace being mentioned throughout the Bible. Easy to talk about. It's interesting, actually, when you look at the Bible, at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they had perfect peace. They're in perfect relationship with God. Then you jump to the end of the Bible and you look at the book of Revelation. God wipes away all the tears. He deals with all the sin. There's no more hunger. Talks about heaven. There's going to be perfect peace then. Here's the problem, and here's a visual for you. 
We don't live in Genesis 1 and 2, and we don't live in the book of Revelation. We live between the covers of the Bible where there's sin. In this world, we will have trouble. He's overcome the world. He's the one who gives peace. The only way we get peace is from him. Easy to talk about, hard to have. And here's why. Imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve, the first married couple, in Genesis chapter 2. I don't know how long they lived like that, but there was no, they, would, they didn't wear any clothes and they had no shame. That had to be pretty cool. I mean, I'm not trying to give you visual pictures. I'm just saying, just, just think of how awesome. No shame, no guilt. They didn't have any baggage. There was no stuff from past relationships. There was no sin issues. There, they never fought once. So how, was this like a millisecond between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3? Or was there like years of no fighting? They didn't care who squeezed the toothpaste. Well, they didn't have toothpaste, I guess. Whatever. They didn't care about bad breath. How many? They didn't have bad breath. There was no sin. How, can you even imagine what that world must have been like? I can't even imagine what that was like. Because I've smelled my own breath. <laughs> But then you know what happens if you've read the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. See, God had told Adam not to eat of the tree. You can have everything in the garden. You can have all the stuff that's here, but there's one tree I don't want you to eat of, the knowledge of good and evil. And he told Adam, and Adam's responsibility then, because he's the spiritual leader of his family, was then to tell his wife. And what we end up seeing is that she gets tempted by Satan. She eats of the tree. Adam's standing right there the whole time, being a passive man, not taking leadership in his family, watches this happen. Then he takes the fruit himself and eats it. And then they have shame and they try to hide themselves. They try to cover themselves. And then God comes looking for them and they hide, which is ridiculous that they're hiding on God. But we do it. You know, I read Jonah, different people. We do it. We run from God. And then God says, uh, why are you hiding? Oh, because we were ashamed. Why? You ate, didn't you? You ate of the tree, didn't you? Yeah, well, and then think about what happens. This woman you gave me, she ate and she gave me some. And then we know what happens is that God gives them the curses. He gives curses Satan, tells Satan what it's going to be like. There's going to be enmity between him and the, and the woman's seed. And he's professing, he's, God's prophesying about Jesus coming. There, and even in Genesis, we see Jesus even in Genesis chapter 3, same in verse 15. And then what ends up happening is the woman gets her curse, and the man gets his curse. And the woman's curse is that her childbirth, there's going to be great increase in pain. Think about that. And then man, what's going to happen for man is going to be incredibly frustrated with his work. And then we don't get everything that happens in their lives after that. And so I, I just use your imaginations for a minute and try and think, because now sin's here. You can imagine the relationship. What do you think it was like right after they got kicked out of the garden? Because then God says, we've got to kick them out of the garden so they don't eat of the tree of life because we told them that they would die. If they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever. They're out of Eden. What do you think the first night was like for Adam and Eve together as a couple after they were kicked out of the garden? Do you think they snuggled up together? I'm going to imagine that was their first fight. And from every woman that I've ever met, so I'm not picking on any one person, I'm pretty confident the first words were, what was that whole throwing me under the bus before God deal out there? And then, well, you're the one who ate the thing. And then it goes back and forth. And I can imagine what, I imagine that Adam slept on a rock the first night. There may have been lots of other options, but he was on the couch. That, and they didn't have a couch, so there had to be something bad out there. And then there were fights that took place after that. And they covered themselves up, and there's shame, and there's guilt. And then somehow they must have made up because they have kids. And so what ends up happening in chapter 4 is then they have their first child. And they have Cain and Abel. And uh, first of all, think of the delivery room. What do you think the delivery room was like for those two, by the way? So no epidural. And there's greatly increased pain in childbirth. I don't know how many of you fathers have been in a delivery room, but it is not a place that was designed for you. They let you go in there no matter what you do, what you say, what you don't say, where you stand, where you don't stand. It will be wrong, I promise you. I know that Eve said this. This, you did this to me. 
in Hebrew, she said it at that moment. And it was intense. And it was problematic. And then Cain and Abel are born. And if you read Genesis 4, it doesn't go well in their relationship either. One of them kills the other one. And so there's sibling rivalries. There's problems in marriage. And then there moves on to wars and rumors of wars and inter- problems with neighbors and their boundary lines and problems with racial conflict and problems with all the stuff we deal with. Now, that's the world we live in. And here's what we end up wanting to do. We never think to ourselves, maybe the problem's in here. We keep thinking, it's, if I just fix the political system, if I could just get my guy elected, if I just lived in a different place, if I just had a different job, and there's a problem in the marriage, if I just had a different spouse and problem with kids with their parents, if you would just give me different parents, God, and we just keep thinking, if we could change the stuff out there, then we'd have the peace that we want. I read a story by a psychologist this week, Dr. Henry Link, and he was talking about uh, one particular family that he was doing some counseling with. And the mother and the daughter couldn't get along with anybody. They had constant conflict with everybody else in the family. The ironic thing was the daughter had given her life to try and accomplish world peace. And so she worked for an organization. I can't remember the name of the organization. But uh, she worked for an organization to try and help nations not have war with one another. He said as the psychologist, it it was so ironic to him to listen to this woman talk about how her desire and all of her social time, all of her activities, all of her giving of her time was for this. But she had constant conflict in her own family. Like, you want nations to get along? You can't even get along with your own family? The irony of that. And so then he said, he said, what ends up happening is we have these inferiority issues, and we've got these insecurity issues, and we've got all these problems inside how things aren't going the way that we want, and we think if we fix stuff out here, it'll go well. Um, what God calls our inferiority issues and our self-esteem issues and all that stuff that causes us to be selfish, he calls it sin. And it doesn't matter how many good thoughts you have about God. And what you think you believe about God, if you're a sinner, you're his enemy. And so what he says in the Bible about that is very interesting. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, he says this, For if when we were God's enemies, pause right there, who's your enemy? Who are your enemies? Think about it personally in your life. I want you to think of your enemy. ISIS is an easy pick, right? So when you saw Paris get shot up last week, or, or think about when you saw planes go into the Twin Towers, if you were alive back in, in that time. Or maybe somebody in your life. I remember when I first learned about human trafficking. I knew mean, there, there was slavery in the world, and I knew it was bad and all that stuff. But when I first learned like what happens, you know, human traffickers, they'll go to like villages where people are incredibly impoverished, don't have enough food even for that day, and they're not educated, and they'll, and they'll knock on the doors of these families that live in these shacks, and they'll say, hey, um, we've got a great opportunity for your kids. We'll take them to the city, and we'll give them jobs, and they'll have money, and they'll have a different life, and these parents have no shot at giving their kids a better life. They're deceived into this. They give their kids away, and then they take their daughters that are seven, eight, nine years old to these cities, and they sell their bodies repeatedly throughout the day as many times as they can to adult men. When I first heard that, and I'm, just, I'm not being, this is not hyperbole, I'm serious. This is what I thought. We've got to kill these guys. And I know guys who can do that. I know SEALs and I know Marines, and we could get this done. And there could be a system. We could wipe out the traffickers. That was my thought. And what do you think about ISIS? And what do you think about your enemies? Do you think if we just love them to the, being changed and we'll forgive them and we'll sacrifice for them and I even give my own life for them? Look at the rest of this verse. For if when we were God's enemies, we were his enemies because of our sin. We were reconciled, that's peacemaking, to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? A couple verses before this, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, he said it this way, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. 
See, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. It's not just that he died for us and therefore none of us are his enemies. It's those who have received him to be savior that are reconciled to him. It's John chapter 1 and verse 12. For those who received him, for those who believe in his name, he's given the right to be called children of God. So if you want peace with God, you've got to receive his son, Jesus Christ, who while you were his enemy because of your sin, he gave his life for you. And to receive Jesus doesn't mean to just think nice thoughts about him or to send some good vibes towards him. It means to not trust in your religious life. It means to not trust in your good things that you've done. It means to not trust in whatever you trust in and shift your trust to what he's done for you on the cross to pay for those sins. The penalty of those sins was the wrath of God and he took it at the cross. But it is possible to have peace with God and not to have the peace of God. Our point was that peacemakers have the personal peace of God. You have to have peace with God to have the peace of God, but it's possible to have peace with God that you've been reconciled because of your belief in what his son Jesus did for you on the cross and not have the peace of God. I mean, you're experiencing it on a regular basis because you live in this world and you get distracted by the sins that are happening here and you get focused on things and you start going on the wrong path too, even as a believer in Jesus. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He's writing to a group of people who are experiencing division from within the church, persecution coming from outside the church. Paul's writing while he's in prison, and he says this, Do not be anxious about anything. (laughs) Easier to say than to do, right? Then here's what the command is. But in everything, in everything, in every circumstance, in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then what happens? There's a promise. So there was a command, now there's a promise. And the peace of God. God, which transcends all understanding that you can't even understand in this world, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's talking about a peace that makes no sense because you live in a world where there is no peace. And the people who have peace, it's false prophets who cry to you, false peace, 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 when there is no peace. And they give you fake things where it's just you don't deal with stuff and you suppress it and you won't talk about it. And if we just had the right guy in the office, and but real peace comes when you have the God of peace in your life. How do you experience that? I've told you that I've struggled with anxiety. I've been in a season of experiencing incredible peace with God. But I can't give you a formula to do it. It's simple to state. It's really hard to experience. You want to study some of it in the scripture? I'll I'll challenge you to go through and, and see how Jesus interacts with people throughout the Bible. And how many times he says to someone after he heals them, forgives them, does something that transforms their life. And he says, go in peace. One of my favorite stories over the last 10 years, I've probably shared it with you hundreds of times is in Luke chapter 7. There's a woman who comes. She's got a story, and it's a mess. And she weeps over Jesus' feet. She anoints his feet with perfume, and then Jesus says her, her sins are forgiven. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she said, he says, those who have been forgiven much, they love much. And then at the end, in Luke chapter 7, verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's the people who have actually done what these Beatitudes say. That you're poor in spirit. You realize you don't bring anything to the table. That you've mourned like this woman has mourned over her sin. Mourned over, it breaks your heart that you've sinned this way. So much so that it causes you to humbly depend upon God. That you're meek. That you then hunger and thirst for his righteousness. You want something that you're not going to get from this world. You want something that only he can deliver to you. In a dry and weary land where there's no water, you want him. In a situation where everything should dictate you, manipulate your circumstances. That you want something here that would please you. That you want him. And that's where it climaxes in these. And so if you're ever in a spot again where you're dry in your spiritual journey, I'd challenge you, write down the Beatitudes on the cover of your Bible and go back to that and say, am I poor in spirit? 
Am I mourning over my sin? Am I longing for his righteousness? Because when I'm longing for his righteousness, what then ends up happening is an overflow and these other things start to happen. Then I'm merciful to other people. Then I'm undivided in my heart. I'm pure in heart. Then I become a peacemaker. It's a great spiritual checklist to just go through the Beatitudes and ask, are these true of me? Now that you know what they mean, use it. For me, a verse that's been significant to me in this season of peace has been in Isaiah. In Isaiah, it says this in chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. So easy to say, right? Trust in you. And then it says, why would you trust in him? Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. He's the rock. He's the one that doesn't change. He's the one that holds the universe in control in every situation in your life in the palm of his hand. So stop worrying about all the situations in your life and trust him. That's peace. That's the peace of God. But notice in our verse, it doesn't just say that blessed are those who love peace, blessed are those who have peace, blessed are those who pray for peace, blessed are those who experience peace. It doesn't say any of that stuff. But in order to be able to do what we're about to talk about doing, you have to have the peace. You can't give out of what you don't have. You have to have the peace of God to be able to be the person that's commanded in this passage. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, go back and read it again with me. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's an action that takes place here. So what do they do? Well, the ultimate picture of a peacemaker is someone else who helps other people make peace with God. Peacemakers, what does the life of a peacemaker look like? First, they have the peace of God in their lives, and then they help others have peace with God. They're the evangelists. They're the people who share their faith. They're the people who tell other people how they can then be reconciled to God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that we've all sinned, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but that God provides a way. And then people get all bent out of shape. There's only one way. Well, there's a way. There's a way that you can be reconciled, and it's through his son. And how cruel does he have to be if there's more than one way and he killed his son? He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. And that was the only way. And why did he come? Because he's the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus is the picture of the ultimate peacemaker. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And so we're being peacemakers ultimately when we're demonstrating his life, when we're doing what he did, which is reconciling people with God. There's a passage of scripture that was written about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. It was in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 52. It describes his life, but it talks about us and our role too. It's quoted in Romans chapter 10, verses 15 through 17, but in Isaiah it says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and share the gospel who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Reconcile people with God. In the context of spiritual warfare, in Ephesians chapter 6, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, and it is ending, and it's all wrapping up there, and then we get told that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We're in a spiritual battle. We've got to put on the full armor of God. Then it says this in Ephesians 6.15, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So peacemakers are people who share their faith. The peacemakers are people who help other people reconcile with God. Now, I've shared with you before the statistics about evangelical Christians sharing their faith, and they're not good. Um, 2014, just recently, uh, Lifeway did some more research, and what they found with all the age demographics was that most people that are evangelical Christian, by that I mean this, I don't mean Gallup sends you an email that says, are you Muslim, are you Buddhist, are you Christian, are you Mormon? But people who say they believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So they believe the Bible, that Jesus is the one who said it, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. 
and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Of those people, the majority of them believe that it's their personal responsibility to share the gospel with other people. And of those people, the majority of them feel comfortable sharing the gospel. It's not that they don't know how to do it, but the majority of them don't do it. <laughs> Which is an interesting, I mean, how do you, I don't know how you even figure out. What's the reason? Does everybody just don't care? I don't know what the reason is. They said of the people that were 18 to 19 year, or 18 to 29 years old uh, that knew Jesus as their Savior said that Jesus is the only way. 85% of them agree they have a responsibility to share the gospel. 69% are comfortable doing so. But 25% look for ways to share and 27% intentionally build relationships with people with the intention of sharing the gospel. Put a link in your study for the small group study that all the members of our church get on a weekly basis. If you're not a member, you want to get it, you can that gives more of the stats, you want to dig more into it. The best stats, if you look at the best stats, they'll say that 50, I think it's 52%, so about half of evangelical Christians actually will share their faith in a, in a year's time period. That's pathetic. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where this message is going, right? Now here's the part where I start beating you up about why you need to share your faith, but I'm not going to do that. Left turn, <laughs> you following me? Here's why I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because it's not true about you. Southbridge, is, it's not true about Southbridge Fellowship. We've asked you the questions before. We've done the survey. And we launched the vision where we challenge everybody with 10x. Everybody has one person they're praying for, one person that they, they're trying to share the gospel with. The last time we did the study on that, 95% of you said that you have at least one person you're intentionally praying will come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Over 83% of you, I think it was like 83.5% or 83.3%, so there's some like half of a person out there that's doing this apparently. Just kidding. You know how stats work. But over 83% of you had shared the gospel with somebody in the last 12 months. That's way better than, now I wish it was 100%, totally wish that, it's way better than the national averages. And so here's the deal. I'm not going to you know, chastise you. It's not just, and by the, don't be fearful like right now. Is he really going to like jab, jab, the haymaker's coming later in the message? No. You're doing a good job. Good job, Southbridge. It's happening. And here's how I know it's happening too. Not just stats that we ask you questions. It just live in our culture, in our church. And so what's become the normal language for people is, here's my, who's my one? And it's the person that you're dealing with. We talk about here, only 27% of you know, the young folks that they were saying were the most likely to share their faith. Only 27% of them are intentionally have a relationship with somebody. You just hang out with people and you find out who their one is. And so I've shown up at people's work that are, that are part of our church, that are members of our church, and had people say, hey, this guy over here, this is my one. I'm trying to share the Christ with them here. So we, I want to introduce you to him. I was at a guy's uh, house last week where he was having a party at his house. And we started talking, and he had a bunch of people there from work and people there from church. And he said, hey, my one was just here. You just missed her. I've been trying to share my faith with her. I invited her to this series, and here's I was sharing the gospel with her. And, and uh, it's normal for you guys to do this. In fact, I had a one lady come up to me, I don't know how many weeks ago. It was the last soccer game that we had uh, on, a, on the soccer fields where my daughter was playing soccer. And, and I'm out there. I'm just there to play, just to watch soccer, okay? I'm cheering for my kid and hoping nobody gets in a fight, right? Like, I want them to score a goal, maybe. It'd be an awesome day. And this woman comes running up to me. I didn't recognize her at first. She had these big sunglasses on. She's like, Pastor Scott, Pastor Scott. And I'm like, oh, no, did I cut her off in traffic or whatever in that moment? I'm just kidding. But she said, uh, she said I want to tell you this story about my one. So now she's got my attention. So now, I don't know, you could score like three goals. I wouldn't even see it, kids. And uh, she's starting to tell me this story about this woman that's her best friend that she knew since 1988 when they served in the military together. They met in Germany. They were stationed together at the same place. And uh, neither one of them followers of Jesus at that point. And this young lady had come to Christ in 1995 and God had radically transformed her life and her friend as they became best friends, uh, began to realize this. And then this past June, or July, July it was, 
uh, she came and visited Southbridge. And so she came to church. She's like, I didn't even know she'd come to church with me, but then I wasn't sure if I should wake her up. And I woke her up and I brought her to church. And, and she came here that day. And she didn't say a whole lot afterwards. And so she wasn't sure what was going on in her life. But then in October, her friend from her friend's own initiative, this is her one. She's praying for this lady. She wants her to come to Christ. She writes up and said, what was it like when you were saved? And so she's like, oh, wow, this is awesome. So she's text messaging her. And she's saying, well, there wasn't like a ceremony. It wasn't some big event that took place. What it is is you, you acknowledge your sin before God, and we've all sinned. And, says, and then you believe that Jesus, what he did on the cross for your sins, takes care of that. And so you shift your trust from whatever you're believing in now to believing in Jesus' death on the cross and paying for that for you. And do you want to do that? She led her friend to Christ via text message while she was in another state. Isn't that awesome? We rejoice in that. So her name's Laura. She's not here today. She's actually up in Virginia because her friend's going to be getting baptized in the church up in Virginia today and she said she's going to send me a picture of it so i'll send i'll maybe post it on facebook her friend said that uh, i could share her story and send all that stuff so maybe i'll pop that on there but uh you're a part of that by the way of this church because you're doing it some of you it's real practical like that you've seen this happen some others of you have led your one to christ some of you have been people in your neighborhood some of you have been family members some of them people in this city some people around the world around the country uh all kinds of different places but let me tell you some celebrate it's happening not just the pictures of the people you see out in the lobby, but it's happening in their lives and it's happening on different people's lives and you're doing it. And so I'm not here to chastise you or to condemn you or to try and force you into doing it. You're doing it. It is happening. And it happens directly like that. It happens indirectly too. Um, it happens for different... Diff- some of you give money financially on a regular basis and we take some of that money, we give it away to see other things take place. One of the ways that we do that is through our missionaries. Uh, some of you know Grant and Jody Waller. Uh, they live in Madagascar, Africa. They went there to plant churches. They've planted 10 churches so far since they've been there. They've gone to people that have never heard the gospel, shared the gospel with them. They've trusted Christ, have then raised up within those people, lay leaders and elders that are in that place, somebody that will pastor their church, and they have actual churches. None of them have buildings yet either. But they are a real church. That's a joke, by the way. But they are real, just like the Bible said, they're a real church. They're a body of believers that are living together that didn't know the gospel, that now know the gospel. God's changed their lives, and we sent out a team at least once a year to go there. And you may remember... Uh, recently, we had prayed over the team. Uh, John Wyatt, that was on the worship team today, was on that team. One of our elders, J.D., a young couple uh, that's in seminary, Nathan and Tessa Baker, were on that team. They went. J.D., when he came back, he was the one I got the report from. He was so excited. Uh, he said, we had over 40 people trust Christ this time. If we had stayed longer, it would have been 140-some people. I said, why didn't you stay longer? Like, why didn't you stay lo- more? And he starts telling me all about what this is like. I was joking. Like, obviously, they're going to continue to do the work there with the, the missionaries, but... These people with white skin go out of this village and they got attention automatically because they're the only ones there with the white skin. But then they can speak the language of these people. They care enough to have learned the language. And they start building relationships with these people and they start telling the story of the Bible and they start telling them about Jesus. While we were enemies, Christ died for us and these people are coming to Christ. And he brought back even some video. You can watch some of it. Some of the folks getting baptized. It's not as nice of a baptismal as we will use today after the service. They're in a mud pit where cows bathe, by the way. Uh, but here it is. cool amen that is an extension of us by the way 
We sent them out. You prayed for them. You financially supported them. There's a, in a way that you've had a role in those people getting baptized. And so you might not meet them on this earth, but maybe in eternity, one of those people, the Mahapalai people will come up to you and say, thanks, thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for praying for me. You prayed for my salvation. You see me get baptized. Wasn't that amazing? You played a role in that. And with Grant and Jody being there, our missionaries, the teams that we send out being there, we planted a church, our first church in the United States in Grand Rapids this year. They're going to be baptizing people today, uh, Pastor Josh and Stephanie. Some of you have invested in their lives. Some of you have given. If you give just even to our general fund, we give money to them to try and support that church. And they're going to be baptizing their first baptismal service today. And so while we're out there baptizing after the service, we can know that there's some people in Michigan that are doing the same thing, and you played a part in that. And so Southbridge, I just want to tell you, you're doing it, and it's happening. Lives are being changed, and it's not normal, by the way. I have one pastor friend that I pray for. He pastors a church in Colorado, and we pray for his church that just one person would come to Christ. We see it happen all the time at Southbridge. We have 40 people trust Christ on Easter. We have people, somebody will probably trust Jesus today. Maybe they already did in the first service. Maybe it's you. We have regularly people trusting Christ in our services on Sunday mornings, through Celebrate Recovery, our children's ministry, some of you just at your work and in your neighborhood with people who live in Virginia and people that live in Chicago and all over the place, reaching people for Christ. It's happening. And so you're living the life of a peacemaker. Thank you for doing that. And that's what a peacemaker is. Third thing a peacemaker is, it's kind of obvious, won't spend a ton of time on it, is a peacemaker not only helps others make peace with God, they make peace with others. And so just read Matthew chapter 5. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but it says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, blessed are those who, are, who make peace, who are the peacemakers. So they'll be called sons of God. Then you jump down to the end of the chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 and 45. And when you're reading the Bible, just a way to read the Bible is look for themes. What does it say there? It says, just before this it said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, you can hate your enemy. But Jesus says, red letters, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Wait a minute. What did that beatitude say? Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. And so here we've got this parallelism. It's the same thing. That here's how you're going to reveal that you're of your Father, is you're going to do the things your Father's done. He's a peacemaker by nature, so make peace with other people in your lives. It's so important. So you got this at the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 5, verse 9, then verses 44 and 45. Jump just to the middle of the chapter, in verses 23 and 24. It's so important. He says this, Don't worship if you're not going to make peace with other people. I don't want your worship. Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Stop worshiping. He's not speaking in hyperbole here. So it'd be like me saying, Hey, you got to reconcile with somebody. When I asked you who your enemy is, you thought of your mother-in-law, your ex-husband, the person your ex-husband cheated with, whatever, whatever the thing. You got to deal with that? Get up. Go. Go ahead, really. Like, it's not hyperbole. If you need to go... I won't judge you. I can't see you anyways. These lights are in my face. But he's saying, it's not that Jesus doesn't want your worship. It's not that God doesn't want you singing praises to him. It's not that he doesn't want you showing up. It's not that he you laying your life down for him. He doesn't want your lip service without your heart. And so let's make peace with those in your life. Paul says it like this in Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If it is possible, it's not always possible. As far as it depends on you, it doesn't always depend upon you. But he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's an action, a peace maker, not a peace lover, not a peace prayer, not a peace wanter, peacemaker. You take action. You make amends where you can make amends. You ask for forgiveness. You take initiative. You can't control what they say. You can't control what they think. You can't control how they feel or what they do. But as much as it depends upon you, 
You make peace. That might mean sacrifice on your part. That might mean laying your life down. That might mean, it might be hard. But it's like your father. Because that's the fourth point. The fourth point is when we're peacemakers, we look like our father. And so what does the life of a peacemaker look like? It's someone who has the peace of God in their life. It's someone who helps other people make peace with God. It's someone who makes peace with other people. And when you do that, you look like your father. I don't think that takes much explanation at all. Because have you ever heard somebody say, you look like your father. You, you're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. It's, saying, it's not saying that you are your mom. It's not saying that you are your dad. Notice it's not saying in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, how to become a child of God. It's saying that then you are sons of God. Now, how to become one? John chapter 1, verse 12. For those who have received him, those who have believed in his name, he gives them the right to be called children of God. It's not just everybody. It's those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior. You may need to do that. But then how does it look in your life? Well, when you're doing the things that he would do, how does that happen? Well, when you're broken in spirit, when you mourn over your sin, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then an overflow of that is then you'll be merciful to other people. You'll be undivided in your heart. You will be a peacemaker that seeks to make peace, not just vertically with God, but you want to do it horizontally with other people. And that's what happens at the cross. He breaks down the dividing walls between us, the racial dividing walls, the gender dividing walls, the social dividing walls, the economic dividing walls, and he gives us peace with one another. We live that out when we live out the gospel, and we look like our Father. So the application of this message is this. Who do you need to make peace with? With God? Some of you may need to trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Some of you may need to make peace with another person. And that might be you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. Thanksgiving, for some people, is a synonym for awkward moments. And here's why. It's because the, oftentimes the tensions that are happening in families that either don't get talked about or blow up. What are you going to do about it? Or some people just don't show up because they're so busy and it's such a long trip and we're just, no, we know the real reasons. How do you make peace with them? As long as it depends on you, what, is, what do you do? And it doesn't mean that you don't deal with problems. It doesn't mean that you don't share the gospel. Those of you who might be your only believer in a family. The next, by the way, the next beatitude flows out of this one. Blessed are the persecuted. As much as it depends upon you, if at all possible, but you can't compromise the truth. This doesn't mean just to stuff stuff, fake peace, pretend like things didn't happen. No, you've got to deal with the things. And how do you deal with the things? And how do you tell the truth? And how do you present the gospel? And then you can't control them. Some of you need to do it. And some of you need to help other people make peace with God. But God's doing it, and he's using you guys self-bridge. It's happening. I hope on your way out you'll look at some of the banners, you'll look at the pictures, you'll watch some of the videos, you'll go watch the baptismal testimonies because God's changing people's lives. I'm going to ask him to change yours as he needs to. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, and I pray that you would save somebody that's hearing these words in Theater 14 here. Maybe they're visiting from out of town. Maybe they've been coming for years. There are people at our church that have been coming for years that don't know you as Savior, and I pray they would trust you as Savior today, right now, in this moment. I think of their names even. I won't pray them, and I won't embarrass them in front of everybody, but God, I pray you'd save them. And I pray, Father, for those that know you as Savior, that aren't experiencing your peace that you deal with the sometimes sin in their lives, the distractions in their lives, all the things that are going on in their lives where they're focusing or trusting in something other than you, and you give them your peace, touch them, transform them, have them experience that peace, not just know it. And I pray that you'd help us to make peace with others and help others make peace with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.